Lord has given me a gift. Only one. I am the most complete fighter in the world. Hello and welcome back to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world. I'm your host, Mike Scott, on this journey through the career of one of the most exciting action stars of all time. This week, we've got a double feature, a veritable cornucopia of spy action for you as we dive into two of Scott's highest profile releases. 2007's Paul Greengrass directed The Bourne Ultimatum and 2012's Catherine Bigelow directed Zero Dark Thirty. And to help me out with that, I'm bringing on this week's champion, my friend Ryan Copeland, who works in Army Intelligence. He works in a bunch of stuff I admittedly don't understand, but he'll give you all the details when we chat. I doubled these up because honestly, Scott only appears in a few minutes in each of one, each of them, but thematically they work well together, so it just made sense. Who was I? They gave you so many identities. Achiever, Lee, Kane, Bourne. You were one of the first ones in the program. We have a situation. Born showed up on our surveillance in Southern Europe. Tour in Italy. London. Tangier. What did he after? He's retracing his steps, looking for something. We need to know what it is. Someone made me what I am. And I'm going to find him. Who's Vosin? He trained you. He was with you from the beginning. He knows who you are. They're not going to let you go. They need to bring you home in a body bag. They can't stop me. Pamela Landy. I hear you're still looking for me. Tracing this. Coming online. Trace is confirmed invalid. Jason Bourne. He's within 1,000 yards of this building. He's communicating. Then we should communicate back. I'm going out there. Get the vehicles. We're going mobile. Follow Landy. She leads us to Jason Bourne. We need to find him and we need to take him out. Streetings Alpha Bravo. Let's look sharp. Where is he, people? Noah Wilson. This is Jason Bourne. I was wondering when you were going to make this call. Perhaps we could arrange a meet. Where are you now? I'm sitting in my office. I doubt that. Why would you doubt that? If you were in your office right now, we'd be having this conversation face to face. This is code 10 aboard. Code 10 aboard. Everyone back to the building. Don't tell me he's gone. He has our entire playbook. Names, dates, ghost sites, every dirty little secret we have. My conversation with Ryan is actually really long, so we're pretty much going to dive right in. I know you all enjoy my intros, but honestly, there has been so much writing about both of these movies that there's not much new I can bring to the table. I highly recommend you do some of your own research on them, especially Zero Dark Thirty, as that movie was, shall we say, controversial on its release? 
Can I be honest with you? I am bad news. I'm not your friend. I'm not gonna help you. I'm gonna break you. Any questions? Maya, this is Joseph Bradley, our station chief. Nice to meet you. You too, sir. You don't think she's a little young for the hard stuff? Washington says she's a killer. I want to make something clear. We're spending billions of dollars. We're still no closer to defeating our enemy. 20 detainees recognize that photo. No birth certificate, no cell phone. You guys are ghosts. Really believe this story? Osama bin Laden? Yeah. What convinced you? Her confidence. This is a professional attempt to avoid detection. Real tradecraft. You're on a list. You of all people should know that once you're on their list, you never get off. There's a 60% probability he's there. I'd say it's a soft 60, sir. It's 100%. I know certainty freaks you guys out, but it's 100. You will never find him. He's one of the disappeared ones. That being said, I wouldn't deprive you, dear listeners, of Scott's thoughts on these movies, and as always, he was kind enough to join me, so let's dive in and hear what he had to say about making both of them. Um, all right, so Holby City, you wrap up. When in the equation does Born come about? Are you still on Holby City, or do you finish your run on Holby City and then end up picking up? Your role yeah, I finished Holby City, I think it was 2006. I'm living in London and um, yeah, this audition. So good friend of mine, Joey Answer, he gets the main, the main role in that. Um, I've got to admit, I was jealous. I was like, damn, that's the role you wanted. I, <laughs> I, I was, of course. I was actually going to ask you, that was actually on my list of questions, was to ask you about Joey Ansa because I know you guys are, are good friends and you, you've you worked together. But yeah, he gets a hell of a role in that movie. Hell of a role, man. And I mean, that was one of his first gigs and, you know, bursting onto the scene in, in a massive way. Um, so that was fantastic for him. But yes, you know, the third Bourne movie, it's like, well, this is the biggest film of next summer. Uh, there's an audition. It's an agent. You have a you know, there's an action scene with Jason Bourne. Can I see a script? There's no script. You're an agent. It's Bourne free. And you're going to have a little fight with uh, Matt Damon. Oh, okay, fine. You know, went for the audition and then you have to, you, you did the, the audition and then you had to do like a little fight 
go, go up and see the stunt team and, and do a fight with them. I remember the stunt team look, look, looking at me and saying, the one guy there, Mike Lambert, he's like, all right, Scott, yeah, okay, mate. Listen, just, just, just go through the motions, but yeah, it's you. So we know, okay, fine. And so obviously past that bit. And then they gave me the part and they said, okay, you go into Madrid um, in two days, get on the plane and off you go, no script. Um, got on the plane, got there, got took straight to set in Madrid. Friday night, the traffic was crazy, right in the center of Madrid. They said, get in this car and you've got to follow that car in front. We're going to put a camera in the back. And you and uh, Chucky, who's my mate who's, who's in the film with me, um, we're going to drive around this Madrid traffic and then you've got to pull in here. <laughs> and it was an absolute nightmare because to try and even keep up with this car that was in front because traffic was so bad. And got, got out of the car and start walking towards the, uh, the place that was supposed to be going. Haven't yet met the director. Haven't said a word to Paul Greengrass. Haven't even met him. And I'm actually filming a scene from the movie without a script. So it was pretty nuts, really. It must be a method to the madness. Well, and by far, uh, your biggest movie up to that point into just in terms of scope of the movie. I mean, this is a major Hollywood production. I, I got to think the medallion is probably the only one that kind of is close in terms of scope and scale at, at this point. What was it like? I mean, obviously that's crazy and you're filming this scene, but was it a little overwhelming being on this big sort of Hollywood movie set when you've kind of traditionally done, uh, you know, some more indie type movies. Yeah, it wasn't at that point, to be honest. I really felt like this is where I belong and this, I want to do more of this and come on, give me more. What's going on, Greengrass? Come on, give me the lines. <laughs> what, who's the character? What's the part? You know, I was, uh, I was up for it. I was hungry for it. I, did, I wasn't intimidated at this point. Um, I felt like I belonged there. What's it like? So you you get you have a you have a fight with with Matt Damon you and 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 Chucky your friend have a fight with Matt Damon. Obviously, as a viewer, I'm not privy to how much is stunt person, how much is actually Damon, uh, and I'm not going to ask you to reveal that. I don't want to destroy the illusion for people unless unless you want to. But it was all Matt Damon for the fight that I did with him. He didn't use a stunt double for any of that. That is that is impressive what i was gonna what i wanted to ask because that's perfect because that leads into what i wanted to ask you've done now at this point a lot of hollywood movies we'll talk about more as we as we go on but what is it like doing a fight scene with an actor like matt damon uh or say hugh jackman down the road or or you know benedict cumberbatch is in doctor strange versus the sort of stunt people or action people that you traditionally work with? Is it more difficult to film that scene or are they more willing to sort of put the work in and, and do the time to make sure that they don't, you know, that, that, that they can work with you? Well, the stunt team, they really want to surround the, the star with people that are going to be safe and, and, and they're not going to accidentally hit him in the face. Um, and, you know, I've always un understood it from that sort of thing. I mean, I, I started off as a stuntman in a way, and I've always felt very close to stuntmen. And I, you know, just doing, starting off with Jackie Chan and, uh, you know, Jet Li and 
and, and being the, the, the sort of fight guy fighting the star, it's very important that you help him and you don't make it harder for him. I remember talking to Donnie Yen about his experience of Star Wars uh, and he was filming a fight and they shot it in England. And um, I don't know if he wants me saying this, but I'll say it anyway, because um, it's true. He, he said the stuntmen in England, he was having to help them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because he was so far more impressive at fighting skills than they were. Obviously, I mean, it's Donnie Yen, right? But he was just having to think like a stuntman, you know, because the stuntman's there to help the big time actor do his bit easier. So I felt like that with Matt Damon. I'm here to help him. Um, I'm going to, if he's making a mistake, I'll fill in the gap for him. I was thinking like a stunt performer at the time, even though I wanted to be an actor and I was, I wasn't, it was an acting part really, but you know, I, I knew what the deal was. Yeah. I mean, you are who you are, right? Like you, you can't not know about fighting. Right. Film fighting. Yeah. Right. Um, but I mean, Damon's, you know, Damon's preparation for those roles is kind of the thing of, of sort of Hollywood legend that you know he was willing to go above and beyond to put the work in uh it's the donnie story is great because i remember i i i love that movie and i know exactly what fight you're talking about and i love that fight scene in that movie but i remember thinking why didn't they just let donnie choreograph this fight because it feels like a donnie fight but it's like donnie light in it uh and uh and so i remember when i saw it in the theater thinking you should have just said, all right, Donnie, for the next 10 minutes of screen time, you know, this is your, you, you do with it what you, what you will, because, uh, it just, so many people of my friends and my social group who aren't as familiar with Donnie Yen thought that fight was terrific. I liked it, but being a Donnie Yen fan, I was like, oh no, 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 no. Let me come over to my house. Let me show you some Donnie Yen. Let me show you Iron Monkey and show you what Donnie Yen is really capable of. Yeah. Well, the thing is, he'd need his team, you see. He'd have to bring his guys over from China and not just the stunt guys as well. He's used to working with certain operators that understand how to capture fights in, in an amazing way. Um, that think like stuntmen and can coordinate the camera with the action. Most camera guys, they haven't got a clue about that. And that's the thing about making independent movies, which obviously I do a lot of, constantly working with new operators and stuff. And they don't, they don't really get it on the level that I get it. I'm constantly having to educate people and, and retrain people. And these are you know, good camera operators, but they're just not used to doing fights at that sort of level. And so it's important to try and work with people that you've worked with before so that you can hit the ground running and not have to educate everyone because it can get very, very frustrating. Well, and I think it shows in the, in the output, right? You know, you, you look at something like just to go back to Donnie, you look at something like his fight with Colin Chu at the end of flashpoint, which in my opinion is maybe one of the 10 greatest fight scenes of all time, but that was, Donnie and Wilson Yip and Donnie's stunt team. And, and, and I mean, it's everybody that had worked together before and it shows there's everybody knows what their role is and, and why it, it works, which is, I think always, again, why 
you working with Isaac and Jesse ends up creating such memorable, good movies. Everybody is moving like a well-oiled machine uh, at, at a certain point. Yeah, that's why you go back. That's why Donnie's keeps going back to work with Wilson Yep. You know, that's because um, you can just hit the ground running and, and continue where you left off. And, you know, it's you don't have to get through all the bullshit. Excuse my French. We are we are uh, an explicit podcast, I assure you. I swear like a sailor and have in every episode. So one day I'm going to record an episode where I'm like, I'm going to get through this without swearing, and I, I can't do it. Wouldn't so, find any swearing in my movies, Mike. The last one that we have coming out in 2012 is Zero Dark Thirty, a major Hollywood movie, an Oscar-nominated Hollywood movie, how does how does this come about? So I got the knee surgery and I didn't want to do an action film for nine months because I really wanted to make sure I rehabbed it properly and didn't try to risk uh, coming back too soon and re-injuring it because then you have to go through the whole thing again. So I said to my agents, no action films, but if we can get something dramatic, I'm, I'm happy to do that, obviously. So... I auditioned for Zero Dark Thirty, and it was the scene from uh, The Hurt Locker. And uh, I, I just auditioned, and, and they gave me the role. But it was a very strange situation where they didn't tell me what part it was. And then they flew me out to Jordan. And, um, you know, I get there, I'm like, have you got a script yet, please? And they're like, no, no, we don't have the script yet. It's being written. We'll give it you when it's ready go and get the costume fitting and everything. And then the next day, have you got the, have you got the script? I, I would like to know what I'm doing. I know that it's uh, Catherine Bigelow. I know that she won the Oscar for best picture for her previous movie, The Heart Locker. So that's why I'm here. But can I please have the scene that I'm meant to be filming tomorrow? Like, no, no, it's not ready yet. It's being written. And so the day of me filming it, I still haven't. I still haven't got the script, and it's American accent, um, and I don't know what I'm saying. And they give me the scene. It's a three-page scene, thirty minutes before we shoot it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is not happening. I'm I'm on a, I'm on a a movie. The the director's last movie. She won the Oscar for it. I want to come in prepared. I want to know what I've got to say. Uh, but they were saying, look, there's maybe there's a method to the madness because this is how it was on the Hurt Locker and that won the Oscar. So we'll give you the, the, the scene in a minute. So yeah, 30 minutes before. And Jennifer Ale, she was uh, pissed off too. She didn't like working like that, but that's just the way it had been. That Mark Boll, the Academy-winning writer, was rewriting stuff all the time and, and just handing you the pages. So it was, very, it was a nerve-wracking experience, you know, I, if I had my martial arts to fall back on, I would have been less nervous, of course, but you're out there working with, you know, A-class actors. Uh, so you want to feel like, you know, you're in a good position to be your best. And I definitely didn't feel that way. So it was actually a really good experience to be thrown into the fire like that and just have to, to come out the other side. And as I said before, I, I used to have this confidence problem and I was getting over it at this point, and that was kind of like th throwing me back into that situation. But I think it was good for me ultimately. 
anyway, I felt like um, I gave a very good account of myself and uh, had a good scene with Jennifer Ayol. It was much longer, um, but I know for a fact that, you know, it went down well and everyone was happy with me. I just think when they edited the movie together, you know, a film like that probably would have been the first cut four hours long and obviously they're tightening it up, tightening it up, tightening it up. And um, the majority of that scene uh, was on the cutting room floor, but good, good experience. Obviously a great experience and, you know, good to just audition for someone like uh, Catherine Bigelow and be given the role, um, at, you know, just going up against all the actors in, in London and, and getting the part is it's always a good, good thing. Well, and that was such a kind of funky movie anyway, because they were trying so hard to keep it topical and on point. And as they're doing filming, we actually kill bin Laden. And so that sort of threw a bunch of stuff out the window. Like it, I cannot imagine that that was, you know, you had a, a section, but for say somebody like Jessica Chastain, who's got to do the whole movie, I got to imagine that had to just be an exhausting movie to, to film just because they were constantly redoing it and changing it and everything along those lines. Well, imagine this, you're in Jordan, you're filming at an army base, 30 kilometers from the Syrian border. You are an independent movie, but for all intents and purposes, to anyone in the East, you're Hollywood. You are Hollywood, you are America. And if you wanted to make a statement, maybe this would be a good film to try and hit. Do you know what I mean? So there was definitely a sense of, are we safe? We're making a movie about the killing of Osama bin Laden. And, you know, we're in the, the Middle East. And I remember there was just, there was one, there was one security guy really that was in charge of keeping everyone safe. If someone had wanted to make a statement, that would have been the film to have done it. So I think they wanted to keep it very much um, under the radar, but I, I, you know, as time would go on, people would be learning what they were shooting. And I meant they brought in this guy from Manchester uh, to play Osama bin Laden because he looked a lot like him. And this guy, man, he didn't know what he got himself into. He's from Manchester and talked like this. Do you know what I mean? Oh, they get. I went for a casting, and they like tell me I look like Osama bin Laden, and then they flew me out here, and here I am. They put a fake fucking beard on me. It's like the way he would talk, nothing like you know, what you would expect. And he, he was like, oh, so you're Osama bin Laden now, mate. Yeah, good for you. We got fucking armies. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Sorry for swearing, but I can't do a Manchester accent without swearing. <laughs> no, well, I think that you have to do a Manchester accent with swearing. Um, yeah. But, I mean... Above and beyond anything else, like you said, great experience. And on top of that, uh, you were in a, a multiple Academy Award nominee. You were in an Academy Award winner for sound editing. And as you said, you acquitted yourself well. So, like, 
that's check again in the sort of career of Scott Adkins checking things off the box. That's a big fucking thing to check off, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, um, grew up watching Van Damme movies and Jackie Chan films. Uh, but also as we discussed, genuine love of acting that I, I, I love, I love to act and a uh, great opportunity to work with a company of brilliant actors Actually, I mean, every small part was, you know, a classically trained actor and uh, really good actors everywhere. And what was great, there was these other actors I was with and they could see my pain of, oh, man, I've got to go and do this scene. I mean, I haven't even got the the lines. And and they pulled together. The one guy was American. The other guy was English. He's like, come on, Scott, right, let's let's, let's learn these lines with you now and I'll help you with your American accent and I'm going to, help you learn the lines and you know we we really stuck together like that and um yeah it's great to be uh i love actors man they're they're the best it's uh well and it's nice too because you're (laughs) i could see a situation and i don't know if you've ever dealt with this situation but i could see a situation where you're on this Hollywood movie, like you said, it's independent, but it's still, it's Catherine Bigelow, it's Jessica Chastain, it's Joel Edgerton. I mean, there's no question it's a big movie. And I could see a situation where some people might be like, oh, it's this direct-to-video action guy. So it's really great to hear that, no, everybody just rallied around and was willing to help everybody out because at the end of the day all you all want to do is make the best movie you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first time I spoke to Catherine Bigelow and I just spoke to her with my English accent and she's like, Oh, can you do an American accent? I was like, well, yeah, I did it in the audition and you gave me the part. Oh, okay. Is this, this is an American part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm going to do it American. But she had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, one thing I will say, because we have talked quite a bit about your accents. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit in Ninja, but over the years, and just even between Ninja and this one, which is only a few years apart, your American accent got 100% better. So, like, that's also a thing that's... I mean, you just, you stepped up to the plate in this movie. I know it's not the biggest part, but you, you stepped up to the plate in Zero Dark Thirty, man. That's incredibly cool. Yeah, and a great opportunity. Um, And I learned a lot. And yes, when you can like share the screen with the likes of Jennifer Ale or, you know, Gary Oldman, Kevin Costner, and make a good account of yourself. It's uh, of course it's uh, confidence boosting. So it's all good, man. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, as always, to Scott for sitting down with me to talk about these movies. Let's bring on this week's champion, Ryan Copeland. So what are we waiting for? Bring me your fucking champion. Uh, 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I just want to let everybody know, because as you know, I hide nothing from you. Uh, what you're about to hear is uh, take two of about the first 10, 15 minutes of this podcast, because my dumbass forgot to hit record. Um, and so <laughs> I, it's important when you podcast that you let your audiences know, uh, but let them go behind the curtain a little bit. And uh, so now I have I have interrupted my guest. I have hit record on both devices that I record on. And uh, we're going to start this all again. Uh, and I do want to apologize to my guest uh, for making him do all this again. But uh, Ryan Copeland is here. He's a very good friend of mine. Uh, he's been a Twitter friend for years. He's been one of the biggest supporters of this show. And uh, I'll get into why he, I think he's the perfect guest for this episode again uh but first ryan how are you tonight man well as i said the first time um but i will say it again because i think it bears repeating as often as possible mike i am glad that you survived covid that you survived 2020 you survived inauguration day and we are here to continue talking about movies yes and i can say again the same thing to you and i promise folks we won't keep saying again but uh so, uh, as you know, folks, from the intro, we're doing a double tonight. We're doing the Born Ultimatum, and we are doing Zero Dark Thirty. And the reason I wanted to do them together is because, one, Scott's total screen time in these movies is maybe seven minutes between the two movies. Uh, it, it's not much, so they're not really big movies in the terms of Scott Adkins as an action star, but they are big movies in terms of his career because they are two of the biggest movies he's ever starred in. One, uh, Born Ultimatum, was a mega box office blockbuster, and Zero Dark Thirty was a an Oscar-contending prestige project by the Academy Award-winning director Catherine Bigelow. To be able to be in these things are a big friggin' deal for somebody that has worked his way through like Scott has, and so... It was important to talk about them, but I didn't necessarily want to just do a dedicated episode on each one, especially given that I think thematically they fit together because they both deal with the concept of uh, intelligence agencies, intelligence gathering, the way the government operates, the way the government operates behind the scenes, uh, in spite of the fact that one is a very sort of straightforward kick-ass action movie and the other one is a much more serious and somber procedural, uh, but I think they tie together well. And Ryan, you have some unique areas of expertise that make you, I think, uniquely qualified to talk about these. So if you don't mind, tell everybody a little bit about what you do for a living. Sure. So I am active duty in the United States Army right now. Um, I joined in 2012 and I was trained in signals intelligence or SIGINT, as I will say just for shorthand. Um, and basically what SIGINT is, um, and none of this is classified, you can go on Wikipedia and read all about this. Uh, SIGINT is the intercept of uh, communications by foreign or enemy adversaries. Uh, we analyze it, process it, and report on it. And the reports go to any number of people that have a need to know for that information, from commanders on the ground all the way up to uh, policy and decision makers in the country, really just depending on uh, the targets we're doing. Um, my first assignment when I joined the Army was in South Korea 
I was there from 2012 to 2015, which was a very turbulent time on the peninsula. That was the time when there was a lot of missile launches, a lot of shelling uh, or artillery fire across the DMZ. And we were there right in the thick of it, doing our job and getting all the reporting that we could to uh, the various commanders and uh, presidential aides and senators and a whole bunch of people were looking at our stuff, which was really rewarding. After that, uh, I was sent to San Antonio. And from there, I got the pleasure to go to Afghanistan. And uh, the work we did there, some of the best work that I've done in the Army, some of the most proudest work I've done in the Army. Um, we provided a lot of information, um, not only for coalition forces to keep them out of harm's way and help them find the targets uh, that they were looking for, but also really help the people of Afghanistan with a lot of the issues they were facing as well. Uh, after San Antonio, um, I got sent here to Georgia, uh, where I'm working the cyber mission set right now and um, just doing a lot of good things. And yeah, it's just been a very fun, varied career I've had in my almost 10 years in the Army. Well, and so much of both of these movies is about military intelligence, gathering analysis, especially Zero Dark Thirty. And so that's one of the reasons that I wanted you, you know, you reached out to me initially and were like, hey, um, I'm kind of in an interesting place to talk about these. And I was like, yeah, you are. So you're going to come on and talk about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and on top of that, you know, uh, you and I have also done a podcast on the Dana Buckler show talking about ninja movies because you are also a diehard action movie fan. When did you first become involved in sort of action movies? When were those a thing that you first realized you dug? So my love for action movies started when I was very young. So I was born in the late 80s. So I missed out on the heyday. Like I listened to you and Dana talk about, oh, we saw this in theater and we saw that in theater. And I'm like, well, crap, I saw that on VHS from the mom and pop store that we rented it from. But my love for action goes all the way back to, you know, uh, Commando, Terminator 2. Those were some of my earliest memories of, of big action films. Um, and as we discussed on uh, the 20th Century Movie Club, uh, with ninja movies that came into my into my memory very early on um, and kind of informed how I view uh, martial arts movies and martial arts scenes within action movies. Um, but I've always been a huge uh, action fan. If you look on my iTunes or my Voodoo, probably most of the movies I own are in the action genre. So. Uh, Definitely still a fan to this day. My tastes have changed, obviously, as uh, filmmaking has changed, but I still have a real love for those those uh, somewhat cheesy uh, 80s action movies. They have a special place in my heart. As do we all. I mean, that's that's why we do this. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about your history with, with the man himself, Scott Adkins, in a minute. But before we get into that, uh, I know that uh, we are recording this on February 11th. It will drop uh, just before March 1st, and I know March 1st is a particularly important date for you. Why don't you tell everybody what's going to happen on March 1st? So on March 1st of this year, my first book that I've ever written will be published and available on Amazon. Um, I started the book 
um, in earnest uh, during the COVID lockdown last year. I had started it sort of just softly taking notes and writing my thoughts and whatnot uh, towards the end of 2019. But uh, during the lockdown last year is when I really zeroed in and wrote everything, edited, and um, actually finished the final, final draft of it on New Year's Eve. And uh, yeah, it's just been a real labor of love and very happy to, uh, to get it out into the world. Um, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from uh, my test readers on the story. Uh, the cover art, which was done by my amazingly talented Uncle Clay, has gotten a lot of uh, uh, good feedback and struck a lot of people's eye. So I'm very hopeful that it will sell well. And uh, I'm already on to writing book number two. And I will make sure to include links in the show notes so that people can support you by picking that up. I know I plan on picking it up. Uh because I would be a terrible friend if I didn't. Uh, but also, I'm excited <laughs> to read it uh, because I happen to know what it's about. But why don't you just very briefly tell everybody a little bit what it's about? Absolutely. So uh, the name of the book is uh, The Spirit of the Warrior. It is book one in the Axton Empire. Uh, the story takes place within the Axton Empire, and it's the story of um, what happens when magic which is fundamental to the society of, of these people. It does everything from helping them grow crops when there's a drought to being a part of their national defense in a way um, as the Axton Empire, the only people that can use magic. So what happens to the, this country, what happens to this society when magic disappears and no one has any idea what's happened to it? And the, the story follows... Uh, these three companions who are sort of charged on this quest to discover what has happened to magic. And uh, you mentioned you're working on the second book. Uh, I, you don't have to answer this. Do you have an anticipation of how many books uh, are going to be in this, in this story, or are you just kind of uh, waiting and seeing as far as it goes? Well, I'm not going to pull a George R. R. Martin and promise a bunch of stuff and then get lazy. Sorry if anyone out there is a fan of George R. R. Martin, but I just call it like I see it. But I'm tentatively planning on at least three books, but maybe more. Uh, once I get to the end of this second book, I'll have a better idea of where the story is going in the broader sense. Very cool. So uh, Adkins Undisputed listeners, please, please, like I said, I will make sure to link this in the show notes. We'll remind you at the end of the show as well when I give Ryan a chance to plug some stuff. But please support independent authors. You guys support an independent podcast. It's the same concept. So please make sure to support this book when it comes out. Um, all right, Ryan, when did the man himself, Scott Adkins, first pop on your radar as somebody that you should maybe keep an eye on? So Scott Atkins came on my radar, I think with the majority of people with Undisputed 2. Um, I was uh, happened to just be scrolling on the internet one day and I went down the random rabbit hole that someone can get stuck on. I think I was looking at comic book stuff that led me to Todd McFarland, that led me to Spawn, that led me to Michael Jai White. Next thing you know, I'm looking at Undisputed 2, watching the trailer, and I'm like, holy crap, who is this Russian guy? I need to go watch this. 
and watched it, was totally blown away. And then next thing you know, I am hooked on this man for life. And come to realize, so I first saw Scott Atkins probably around 2013. I was late to the game. But since then, when I've seen other movies yeah, that I have seen before or movies subsequently, he always sticks out to me like, hey, that's the guy, except he's not kicking ass. But OK, cool. That's the guy. And yeah, I, I've, I've always just been so uh, enamored with his with his brief uh, screen times in some of the other movies, but just the presence he exudes. And then in the uh, movies where he's the leading person and he's taking center stage with the action, he he's just phenomenal. One of the best in the business today. Well, I don't know if I can agree with that statement. I mean, it's not like I run a podcast about the guy or anything, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no. And, and you're right. I mean, uh, it's been a recurring theme on this show is undisputed too, has been, you know, kind of the, the, the most common movie that people, there's been a lot of movies that, you know, people have found him in, but that's certainly the most common one. It's certainly the one where I first realized I had seen him, um, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, we're going to talk about a couple movies where he shows up basically long enough to uh, either uh, get beat up or uh, get blown up. Uh, so let's start digging in with talking about first 2007's The Bourne Ultimatum. Tell me a little bit about your history with the, the Bourne franchise. Was that something that you... Like right when Born Identity came out, you were all in on, or did you come to that later? So I actually did not see the Born Identity first. I saw the Born Supremacy, the second one in the series. I had seen the previews on TV and was like, man, that looks amazing. Matt Damon, I had no idea. Let me go check this out. Went to the theater and was totally blown away by his acting, by the story, by the filmmaking, which when I was younger when the movie came out. I didn't really appreciate the level of filmmaking that Paul Greengrass puts into his films, but subsequently have come to love him. So after The Born Supremacy, went back and revisited The Born Identity. Loved that one too, for different reasons. Um, and then when The Born Ultimatum came out, I was there opening night, needed to see it. And to this day, The Born franchise as a whole is one of my favorite action franchises, but this trilogy of films, Identity through Ultimatum, is one of those rare occurrences, in my opinion, where the sequels get better than their previous films. Because um, in The Born Identity, I mean, it's, it is the sort of origin story of Jason Bourne. It's a totally different director. So everything is shot in a much different way. And then as the films progress, the themes get a little bit more serious. Um, the director, um, is like I said, Paul Greengrass really brings the sort of uh, docu style um, to the film, so it feels more real, more lived in. And then once you see Supremacy and Ultimatum back to back, you realize that the filmmaking, the storytelling, is very, very unique, and that Ultimatum begins essentially, I don't know somewhat before the end of the previous film. So it almost feels like it's a direct continuation as opposed to where most films where you can tell there's a clear break in the, in the timelines between sequels. This one starts almost immediately where the other one had left off. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a, a coherence in supremacy and ultimatum that you don't 
often see in a lot of in a lot of sequel movies where um, it, it seems like everybody on board kind of had an idea of where they wanted this to go, uh, which isn't necessarily if you read the behind the scenes stuff isn't necessarily the case, but they damn sure made it look like that. Um, I'm going to ask you really quick. Have you actually ever read the Robert, the original Robert Ludlum books of, of the born series? I read the born identity and that was it. And this was a number of years ago. I want to say I was in college when I read it. Um, and it, it was a really enjoyable book. It's vastly, well, I shouldn't say vastly. It's somewhat different than the movie. The basic premise is the same where there's, a super spy slash assassin who has amnesia and then totally changes who he is. He has a more of a consciousness to himself um, and doesn't want to have that old lifestyle. Other than that basic premise and the names, a lot of it is different, but not bad or worse, just different. Yeah. And, and I've actually read most of it. And uh, I will tell you that supremacy and ultimatum are radically different. Um, I will also go out a bit on a limb here at the risk, uh, you know, you already called out George R. R. Martin, so I feel okay calling out Robert Ludlum, uh, that I found <laughs> the books to be absolutely dreadful. <laughs> um, I am sorry right if there's on. fans listening to that, like what you like, read what you love. Um, but I, I found a lot of Ludlum's writing, to be, especially his dialogue to be, um, just not the way people talk and it kind of drove me nuts. So I am actually a much, much bigger fan of the movies. I, I think the movies are uh, vastly superior to the source material. Um, and, and so that's why I was asking because I, I don't want to do a breakdown of the differences or anything like that. I was just curious your, your experience with that. Um, I would also, you know, before we really dig into the ultimatum uh, of it all, I would also be remiss uh, if I didn't ask, uh, your thoughts on both the Bourne legacy and the belated sequel, Jason Bourne. <sighs> so I have many thoughts about this. Uh, the Bourne legacy, uh, which is not, it is a part of the Bourne franchise, but it's not a Jason Bourne film. So the Bourne legacy for anyone who doesn't know stars, Jeremy Renner, who in my personal opinion, doesn't get enough credit as he should because i mean he's amazing and the born legacy uh it was directed and written by tony gilroy who is the same guy who wrote supremacy and ultimatum so it has a little bit of that same flavor to it as far as uh the story goes and the storytelling goes but when it comes to the direction and the execution i mean tony gilroy is not paul greengrass by a mile but he does give it his best effort. I just don't think it's uh, in the same vein as the uh, previous three movies. And then, like you said, the belated Jason Bourne film. I mean, um, at a certain point, I don't think that it should have happened. I really feel like Jason Bourne's story was done at the end of Ultimatum. But because of, uh, I guess, fan demand because Hollywood just tends to run out of good ideas. Um, they just decided to make it. I, I really don't understand the need for a fourth film. Um, I felt like there was enough open-endedness 
where you could draw your own conclusions and have some kind of closure if you gave a little bit more forethought uh, to the end of Ultimatum. Um, but I mean, it still has some solid action scenes in it. I just, it's, it's not my favorite in the franchise. Yeah, I'd actually go as far as to say it's it's I think by a fairly large margin the worst in the franchise uh, in my opinion because the thing I I like about Legacy is it at least goes in a completely different direction right like I don't think the movie is entirely sure. successful but I'm never gonna be I ain't ever gonna be mad about a movie trying to do something different you know as we're recording this there's. Uh, it's just been announced that that Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett are going to do a remake of Face Off. And a lot of people are upset Ugh. about that. My take on it is this. They're the guys that did Your Next and The Guest, which means they are probably going to bring a much more horror angle to it, which I think could be interesting. Now, if they just try and mimic John Woo, that's terrible. That's why I like Legacy. <laughs> Because it, it doesn't try and mimic. You know, Gilroy doesn't try and mimic Greengrass's shooting style. Jeremy Renner's nothing like Matt Damon. I mean, they're both arguably bland white guys, but, uh, you know, they sure. have very different acting styles and stuff like that. So at least they tried something. Jason Bourne, in spite of the fact that they brought Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon back, just felt like such a weird third-generation VHS copy of a Bourne movie. Yeah. Um, you know, it had Vincent Cassell, which I'm never going to be mad at. I always like Vincent Cassell and things. And I think their last fight is pretty good, but so much of it just felt perfunctory to me, which is not something that I ever felt about any of the Bourne movies, even legacy for all its flaws didn't feel perfunctory. There was actual concern about trying to make a good movie there. Jason Bourne just felt like they're ticking boxes and nobody seemed particularly invested in that movie. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. I mean, Matt Damon clearly didn't need to come back for another Bourne movie because since the end of Ultimatum, I mean, his career has just continued to go up, up and up. Um, so I really don't know the purpose of the movie. And then it almost feels in certain parts of that of that fourth movie or sorry fifth movie where instead of trying to be uh sort of cutting edge and new they're sort of rehashing their old styles and their old techniques which there was what a nine-year difference ten-year difference maybe between ultimatum and and uh jason Bourne, and so by that time things are going to feel a little bit worn in and been a little worn out and it just kind of felt like like you said they were just checking the boxes on how they approach things and how they film things and really the story itself was just uninteresting well and it really bothered me that they brought julia styles character back just to you know spoilers for a movie we're not talking about but i'm going to assume <laughs> that if you're listening to this you've seen jason Bourne. you know they bring her back just to kill her off it, it was just yeah Anyway, we're not here to talk about Jason Bourne. We're here to talk about the good one. And I agree with you in that I think this is the best of the franchise, the Bourne Ultimatum. We cannot talk about the Bourne movies, particularly Supremacy and Ultimatum, without talking about the way Paul Greengrass films his action scenes. Now, I, I don't, I guess quickly off the record, did you get a chance to read that article that I sent you? 
I did. Absolutely. Perfect. So literally today, uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, Sidant Adelaka, uh, released an article on Polygon about the value of the way Paul Greengrass shoots his action scenes. And it's as everything that Sidant does is, uh, and, and if I'm mispronouncing his name, and he happens to be listening to this. I apologize. Uh, I'm try. I try really hard <laughs> to get names right, but um, his uh, take is that, in spite of the bad reputation that the Bourne movies get for shaky cam and stuff like that, the Bourne movies, those criticisms aren't applicable to the Bourne movies. They're applicable to the movies that came in the wake that tried to copy the style without the intention and design and planning that Greengrass and his team brings to it. You know, particularly he calls out a, a director that anybody that follows me on Twitter knows, I think is, is one of the absolute worst directors to ever direct an action movie, Olivier Megaton, uh, which by right. the way is not his real last name, uh, which just kills me because that would be like me just deciding yeah, I'm going to change my last name to, you know, Mike smash him out or something like that. Uh, anyway, Sedan's <laughs> um, point is, is that everything that Greengrass did was by design and it was by design to help us live in the world that Bourne lives in this world of confusion and chaos. Uh, but also that every single shot selection, every single frame in the fight scenes in the Bourne movies is meticulously chosen and meticulously structured. Ryan, would you agree with C-Dance, uh sort of take on the action scenes in this? Absolutely. With the Bourne films from Supremacy and Ultimatum when, uh, when Greengrass took over, um, as I said before, he took a very docu-style uh, approach to the films and that applies to every single facet from the conversation scenes the more introspective scenes people just walking across the street and also with the action scenes the action feels very visceral feels very much like you're the third person in the room uh, for some of these scenes and it can be very jarring and it can be I would almost say that it is action in the sense that it's very thrilling but it's almost just violent in the approach he takes, especially in the, the third film, which we'll get to in a minute, but with the sound design and their cutting style, it really adds a sense of realism to it and really shows the capabilities of these people who are supposed to be super spies and super assassins, like what they can really do whenever they go head to head with one another. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this movie actually has what I consider to be the best fight in the entire franchise, which is the apartment fight between <clears throat> Bourne and uh, Dash, played by the great Joey Ansa, who is a name that listeners will hear as we go on in this series because he's in Green Street 3 and he's also a, just a tremendous stuntman and a tremendous action actor in his own right. But I sort of feel like that fight between the two of them is really where... Everything that Greengrass is doing sort of comes to its apex. Uh, it, it's it's a tremendous fight. It's a fight that, for all the, the complaints about it, I don't have a hard time following because, much like Sedan said, Greengrass is so meticulous in how he chooses his shots that you can still see, even if you don't necessarily 
comprehended at the time. Your brain is still processing this because, and I'm rambling a little bit here, but one of the things that Sidanth points out is uh, much like the way Asian Hong Kong filmmakers, they edit for the impact, whereas a lot of Western editors and directors edit around the impacts. Here, Greengrass is making sure we get every impact. So we're feeling the punches, even if we're not necessarily visually registering them. And I think that is what makes the difference between the action scenes in these movies and the the hacks and and terrible people that tried to emulate the style uh, in the wake of these movies. Absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind is Greengrass is a master of suspense. So, yes, the action is very punchy and in your face and you feel every impact. But if you look at just the action scene at Ultimatum and rewind it 15, 20 minutes, there is a whole plot where Desh is being sent to this place to kill this uh, CIA guy born and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Julia Stiles character are being sent there to also get this guy. So there's this whole sort of... Uh, tension that's being ratcheted up and directly before the the um, fight in the apartment there's a car chase there's a foot chase there's explosions and then there's music playing and there's a lot of sound effects and then when Bourne jumps through the window all that stuff dies away and we get into that action scene same thing in the previous film Bourne Supremacy when uh, Bourne is fighting the other uh, former uh, assassin in the apartment. It starts off very slow with a little conversation about what's going on, and then it explodes into this amazing fight scene in that as well. So Greengrass is not only cutting very interesting and impactful action, but he's also ratcheting up the tension for this sudden burst of energy that comes across on screen. And very few directors can do it as well as he can. A lot of directors will keep the action at sort of a low hum and then it'll raise up and lower back down raise up and lower back down but with green grass it's either going from just a subtle little conversation to an explosion or it's just a slow ratchet up of the tension until you get to the crescendo yeah i mean you know we get the great the great scene of of born you know parkouring across all the rooftops and stuff and to the point that it's almost it's almost a cathartic release when the actual fight starts, right? Because he's been ratcheting this tension up so much that you're you you as a viewer, you're just you're wound so tight uh, that when the actual punches start coming, it's it's almost kind of a release. You almost kind of can relax a little bit because it's like, okay, Bourne made it there, and 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 now they're just gonna do their 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 fight. Um, which isn't to denite in any way, but just to simply say that, like, you know, and this has been a running thing that I've said on this show repeatedly, that in the best action movies, every fight should tell a story. And certainly Greengrass is a master of narrative through fighting. Uh, he, he knows how to use the language of action to tell a story so that nothing feels inessential. As you're watching it, every single thing that's happening feels important to the story that he's trying to tell. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Greengrass knows how to 
put narrative first, put story first, put character first. So whenever you get to these action scenes, it doesn't feel sudden. It doesn't feel out of character. It doesn't feel like it was just sprung on the viewer that, oh, all of a sudden they can do this. Okay, cool. He really puts the action as a way to push the story forward, to push the narrative forward, where everything feels earned with him. To whereas I think maybe lesser uh, directors sort of put these characters into these predicaments out of convenience because they need to do this in order to move the plot along. Whereas Greengrass with uh, his writing partners in tow will sort of plant the seeds over time to make everything feel, I don't want to say realistic, but makes it feel like uh, these characters could have already done this and it's not happening just for convenience. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, one of the things I always admire about this trilogy, and, and I'm saying trilogy because Legacy and Jason Bourne are over here somewhere, um, is yeah. how tightly constructed, it, which is amazing given that we have Doug Lyman and Paul Greengrass directing, you know, these. They're, they're, we've got entirely different creative teams for a couple of them, but, you know, I always think about the the end of this movie when uh, not Dash because Bourne's already beat him, but uh, pause uh, Edgar Ramirez's character, you know, and, mm-hmm. and Bourne there, they've got the showdown on the roof and Bourne basically says, you know, do you even know why you're here? Like, look at you, you know, look at us, look at what they make you give, which is a callback to what Clive Owen's character says at the end of Bourne identity. And that it's such a, a creative way to let us see in that one moment the entire journey that Bourne has gone on through these three movies um, and, and the way in which he has become sort of, he has broken free. And I think that's actually, again, not to just bag on Jason Bourne, but that's part of the reason I don't like that movie is because he says that to pause he gets shot by, by David Strathairn's character. He falls off the roof. And then we get the very last scene where he's swimming away. And you mentioned it, Ryan, like that is the perfect ending for Jason Bourne. He has finally broken free of everything that has been weighing him down for all this time. And absolutely. You know, I mean, his go ahead. Yeah, go no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the whole through line of the trilogy like yes there is political intrigue and there's espionage etc etc but the whole through line narrative is jason Bourne finding out who he was finding out who he really is coming to peace with it and then moving on with his life and the end of ultimatum when he's in the water and he swims away i mean that is akin to the end of the dark knight where the batman gets on his on his bike and rides off into the night and the police are chasing him. I mean, you I mean, you could just stop right there. There is no need for an additional follow-on. You can use your own conclusions. You can you can maybe have a sequel if you wanted one, but there's really no need. It's a very cathartic ending to this character's journey that really didn't need to go on. Well, and when we meet him again in Jason Bourne, again, I'm trying not to just bitch about that movie, but he's like you know, living in Greece, like fighting in bare knuckle fights, like he's fucking Rambo in Rambo three. And it's just like, that's, that's not where that character ended. 
Like, no, you know, it, it, it's just, ah, uh, anyway, back to born ultimatum. So typically what I do, <laughs> what I do on these is I always ask people for some high points and then some low points. So, uh, we talked quite a bit about some stuff, but, but give me some other high points of the movie. So other than the amazing action and uh, Paul Greengrass's uh, style of filming, the performances um, in these films really stand out, especially from Joan Allen and uh, David Strathairn. They are, I mean, giving master classes in acting within the genre. Uh, Matt Damon, the way Bourne is uh, written and probably directed, he's kind of a flat character he's very single singularly minded on his objective and that is what he's going towards and it's not till the end of the film when he sort of displays any kind of emotion and sort of breaks down in front of uh pause uh, on the on the roof uh but the performances from the other leads are fantastic and uh, i mean for this being such a big blockbuster film the fact that they have these caliber actors in the film is is absolutely amazing and elevates it in a way that other action films don't get elevated yeah i mean we've got we've even got scott glenn just rolling in and ruling right like like every single Mm -hmm. actor in this movie patty constantine is just amazing in it like every single actor in this movie top to bottom is bringing their a game for what amounts to a summer blockbuster and Mm-hmm. This is really one of those movies. This series is one of those series that that in the I don't know that a lot of people necessarily give credit as enough credit for being a, a, a 2000 series that really made it okay for Oscar winning actors and actresses to star in blockbuster movies. You know that that laying the groundwork for you know for as much as people complain about the MCU and you and you and I, Ryan, we're comic nerds. We love the MCU, but, mm-hmm. but for as much as people <clears throat> complain about it, like the caliber of actors in Marvel movies is mind blowing. And absolutely. Born was one of the first, you know, sort of real trilogies, real major blockbuster series to, to do that. I'm sure people on Twitter are going to point out a bunch of other exceptions. It doesn't change my point that the acting in this series is next level good. And that is really something special uh, for for these types of movies to have this caliber of actor. Absolutely. And Born Ultimatum came out in 2007. In 2007, that's when they were doing pre-production and filming of Iron Man, because that came out in 2008. So, I mean, like you said, uh, people on Twitter and social media will say that there's onesie and twosies exceptions, but really the Born series... Having big actors in it like Matt Damon, like uh, Clive Owen, like freaking Scott Glenn and Albert Finney for crying out loud, showed people that it's okay to do these movies. If the characters speak to you and you enjoy uh, the story, then go do these movies. And because these high quality actors are in it, it elevates these films from just a simple popcorn film to just a higher level of, of quality. And that extends all the way through to the MCU films where you have Robert Downey Jr. Then you have Edward Norton, for crying out loud. You get Samuel Jackson, which 
is one of the best castings ever in any movie, period, because he's Samuel L. Jackson and he rules. And Scarlett Johansson and all of these people come into that universe and elevate what essentially could have been just summer popcorn films to a higher level and to a higher degree. And I wouldn't, it doesn't necessarily begin with the Bourne franchise, but the Bourne franchise and the success from it really sort of showed Hollywood and showed actors and actresses in the business that it's okay to do these types of films. You probably will help this film get better recognition than it would without you. So why not go do it? Yep, absolutely. And and it made just, yeah, it, it made, you know, so many people, and I don't want the Nolan fans to, you know, track me down and firebomb my house, but so many people give Nolan credit for making blockbusters sort of intelligentsia friendly. And he did. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Batman Begins. I love The Dark Knight. I love a lot of Christopher Nolan films. Time Cop 2, less so. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but the Bourne movies were there right alongside him and Paul Greengrass and Tony Gilroy and Matt Damon and everybody else involved was doing the exact same thing. And I feel like we have 10 years, 13 years now on kind of stopped. Ge- we, we think of these movies as the movies that gave us shaky cam and not much else. Uh, and, and we don't give them the credit that they're due for being the just absolutely, at least the first trilogy, being the absolutely kick-ass, top-notch action movies uh, that they are. Absolutely. And at the time when the Bourne films came out, there was a distinct lack of Bond movies, too unless I'm mistaken, I, I'm pretty sure Casino Royale hadn't dropped yet. Um, so Bourne was sort of the Hollywood action spy guy for a while and sort of set the tone, especially in the, uh, sorry, in the Bond franchise for the approach to take to those films instead of them being sort of a camp, uh, high concept popcorn summer fair it turned into Bond being a nitty-gritty assassin-type character, which some people would not like because they hold on to the previous uh, Bond interpretations, and some people do enjoy it because it adds a sense of realism. But you can tie all the Bond films from Casino Royale, almost certainly up to the latest one, to the prototype that the Bourne film set out. Yeah, absolutely, because you get... So I'm glad you brought that up, because for people that want the timeline, you get Die Another Day, which is admittedly a movie that I will champion, because, Ryan, you know me, I am the champion of garbage movies. Um, I like like Die Another Day, I will champion that, but that is the, like, arguably the ultimate in campy, ridiculous, over-the-top Bond movie. That comes out in 2002, the same year as The Bourne Identity. Two years later, we get The Bourne Supremacy in 2004, and a year later, we get Casino Royale in 2005. So what we ultimately get is the end of Campy Bond tied into inextricably with the rise of Bourne and then the grittier, more hardcore Bond that Daniel Craig brings to the table. The the two are 
are inextricable. Uh, you cannot separate the two because the one was such an answer. Born was such an answer to where Bond had become. And Bond had no choice but to change or die. Uh, to quote one of my, my favorite lines from High and Low, change or die. And, uh, and so I think you're right for bringing that up because there's just no question that, that Casino Royale and, and the most recent Bond movies are heavily influenced. And in fact, you can really see it in Quantum of Solace, which is also, yes. I think, one of those movies that, that C. Dance would point out is poorly using shaky cam that is using shaky cam with no plan or intent or concept of how that could help the narrative in any way, shape or form. I like quantum of solace, but I still think it's poorly shot and edited. Um, so, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, all right. Any other high points that you want to talk about with the movie? Um, they, well, <laughs> I mean, other than the things that we previously discussed, um, I mean, at, at a certain point, given my background, uh, the the uh, reality of what is going on started to kick in and started to kind of wear on me a bit. But that's not to say for the movie going audience who has no concept of how these sorts of things would happen in the real world. Um, it'll take away from any of that. But for me personally, knowing how things sort of work behind the curtain, seeing that portrayed on the film was, I don't know, a little bit of a distraction at some points. But, but like I said, everything we previously touched on was just top-notch for me all the way. And to this day, Bourne Ultimatum is one of my absolute favorite action films. The Bourne series in general, other than the ones we will not discuss, um, is definitely in, in my top echelons of action films. Well, I was about to switch to low points, so let's spend a little time about that because, <laughs> as you know, you know you know what I do for a living. For people, I, I can't imagine there aren't there are listeners that don't know what I do for a living, but if you don't, I'm a lawyer, and I have been very upfront about uh, how watching legal movies is incredibly difficult for me because so many of them they get things wrong and they get things wrong in a way, you know, I always call it like lazy research failures. I fully understand how in a legal movie, you know, somebody gets arrested for murder and they're going to trial like a week later. I get that because nobody wants to watch a movie where it takes five years for a murder case to go to trial. So I, that stuff never bothers me because that's for narrative, but there's so many things that I see that are just, the way court happens, the way trials occur that are just lazy research failures where if the writers had bothered to pick up the phone and call a lawyer and say, hey, how would this happen? And the lawyer would say it would happen like this. It wouldn't affect the narrative. It would still be dramatic and they'd get it accurate. And it drives me nuts when I see that. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, as much as you can. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things in this that as somebody who does this stuff, you know, you're not like parkouring across roofs. At least I assume you're not. But you you are doing it, analyst, you know, analysis and intelligence gathering and stuff. Are there things in this that were very distracting for you when you watched it? So there are a number of things. Um, so I need to preface this a little bit. 
So as I said before, I, because of what I do in SIGINT, and I'm part of the Army, the uh, military intelligence uh, people, along with uh, agencies such as the NSA, DIA, NGA, et cetera, et cetera, <clears throat> we're all part of the Department of Defense, meaning our mission is to target foreign adversaries, foreign entities for the express purpose of informing military commanders and uh, decision makers, policy makers, et cetera, et cetera. That is our role. The CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, and once again, nothing I'm saying is classified. You can go Wikipedia it all day long. The CIA is technically classified as an independent agency. They are funded by the United States government. They work at, well, they used to be uh, directly tied to the president of the United States. They did what he wanted to do post 9-11, which we'll talk about this when we get to Zero Dark Thirty, but post 9-11, they are realigned underneath the director of national intelligence. So they answer to him and they fulfill his requirements that he gets from the president, et cetera, et cetera. So when the CIA, who does not do SIGINT, is trying to collect on people's phones and emails, it really bothers me because I know people in the CIA and I know that despite what you see in the movies, they are not that technical savvy. Some of them are really stupid and they just had good degrees or they know someone in the business and got in that way. They can't do what I do. And to see these people who don't even have the authorities to do what I do is a little distracting. That's first of all. Second, like you said, with lawyer films, everything happens to appease the story and appease the narrative. I understand that. But the way people receive intelligence, receive raw information coming in is almost at the speed of light. And that is just uh, impossible, especially uh, in one particular scene in the Bourne Ultimatum, wherein uh, uh, Bourne is talking uh, the reporter through uh, uh, the, uh, what is it? The subway terminal or the train terminal. And the people back in CIA in New York, which there is no CIA in New York, they're all in Virginia, they're able to get real-time tracking on them, and they're able to access CCTV, and it's instantaneous. I mean, number one, that's illegal, because we are friends with the British, and we can't spy on their people, so the fact that we have access to that is super illegal, and everyone in that building is going to jail for a very long time. Number two, it also kind of bothered me that for some reason they forgot that there's a time difference between New York and, and uh, London, and it is broad daylight in both places. So I don't know, that's just a little nitpick of mine. Um, other than that, their willingness to kill their own people kind of bothered me. You just don't go about killing fellow Americans because they know something you don't want. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who have done it before and maybe are plotting it, I don't know. But for me personally, in my experience, I have never been privy to that kind of activity. I would call that shit out in a heartbeat. That is also super illegal. And if you even plot that kind of crap, you're going to jail for a very long time. I mean, if I go to Afghanistan and I have certain rules of engagements before I'm allowed to fire on someone, then people like this should definitely have some levels they have to go through before they kill one of their own fellow Americans. So that also 
really bothered me. And also, last point, I promise. Um, because of the timeline of these movies, Born Ultimatum is ostensibly taking place also in 2004 when Supremacy came out. So the technology in the universe should be locked in at that 2004, 2005 timeframe, yet they are using more sophisticated forms of technology, which I understand it all has to fit into the narrative of the film. It has to fit the story. Um, I get it. But it, it, for me personally, um, and I'm sure for other people who nerd out about technology stuff, it would have felt a little bit more realistic if they kept you that sort of locked in technology time frame but once again i i fully understand and i'm not mad about it it's just my own personal little nitpick well and sure i totally understand that because you know there's 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 movies that are so good you can overlook that stuff you know one of my favorite courtroom movies of all time is a few good men i mean it's the reason i went to law school i can light that movie up as far as its inaccuracies, legal inaccuracies. But I don't care because most of those mistakes do just help the narrative. Now, you give me an average episode of CSI and I will blow a gasket because those mistakes aren't helping the narrative anyway. They're just being lazy. Um, and so I get it here because the, the technology thing is a perfect example of that's just being lazy. That's not thinking through and doing your your idea you know obviously the cia is as my dad would often say after sort of the fall of of the soviet empire in the 80s when they were always the villains he would always joke when we'd watch movies he'd be like thank god for the cia because i don't know what screenwriters would do if they couldn't use them as the bad guys and look i've <laughs> i've read legacy of ashes trust me i i understand that the cia is they got some shit in the past, but nonetheless, you know, it is one of those things where it is important to remember this is a potboiler spy action movie, and it's it's not going to be accurate, but those types of things are tough when you're in that world. I know most people, you know, one of the legal movies, and I don't want to go too deep in the weeds on it, but one of the legal movies that drives me absolutely bug nuts fucking insane is the Edward Norton, Richard Gere movie, Primal Fear. That movie drives me up. And I know people love that movie. And they're always like, it's just a movie. And I'm like, yeah, but they could have made the movie accurately and still done the same, like still had the same movie. You know, that shit just drives me nuts. So I'm, I'm with you, man. Um, that's one of the reasons I wanted you on this, uh, because I think those are all... Important points. They don't necessarily detract from the the fun of watching the movie. I mean, look, the reality is, is I love watching Scott Adkins do Giver kicks, and the Giver kick is a completely worthless real world move, but it looks hella cool on on the screen. This is kind of the same, but it is important to point those things out so that people, you know, we live in an era of QAnon. And so it's important to point mm. out things that are factual and real so that people don't believe things that aren't. Uh, so I appreciate you laying all those things out. Absolutely. And like I said, this it's not to say that 
CIA doesn't have these kinds of people out there. I'm sure they do. But I can guarantee you, once again, from my own perspective and experience, that CIA's activities are not happening domestically. Okay, that, that's why we have the Department of Justice. That's why if you're saying, oh, the government, like NSA is looking at my computer, they're reading my emails. Once again, from my own perspective, that's not the case. I would go to jail if I decided to do that. I have a lot of training to tell me not to do that. People you need to worry about are the big tech companies selling your data. You need to worry about the Department of Justice maybe doing something shady. I'm not too sure about their, their types of oversights. But uh, as far as the CIA is concerned, every CIA person I have met, be it an analyst or uh, a case officer or whomever, they are all concerned with saving American lives. They are all concerned with getting to the bad guys. And none of the bad guys that are they're concerned with are in the United States. They're all focused overseas. So when you have a movie like this and you have this sort of rogue entity, well, I don't want to say rogue entity, but super black entity within the CIA and they're targeting Americans and they're conducting operations in the United States, to me, knowing what I know, I know that that's not true. But once again, like you said, it all fits to serve their narrative of uh, the film. And the film as it is, is amazing and very gripping and very dramatic and thrilling. So I don't fault the film for doing these things. I understand why they do it, but from the real world perspective, that's not how things happen. Well, and I think that is uh, a good time to to start segueing into our next movie. But before we do that, I do just want to point out we haven't talked about Scott. Uh, for those who don't remember, he is in one fight when when Bourne meets up with Nikki. Uh, it's a pretty good fight. Uh, Born incapacitates them, but Ryan, would it be fair to say that unfortunately, uh, our boy Scott is not given the opportunity to make a ton of impression in this movie? No, Scott Atkins amounts to maybe two to three minutes of actual face on screen time in this film, and most of it is in the dark when him and another guy are going to this CIA safe house in Spain. And um, Jason Bourne has a little bit of a little uh, fight with Scott versus the other guy, but he's quickly dispatched and uh, that's it. We're just moving on. But when he's on the screen, man, he, he, yep. That's Scott Atkins and all his glory. He is there. Yep. It's pretty hard not to notice him. Um, all right. So <laughs> before we move on, uh, I think I already know what the answer to this is. I guess I should say first, Ryan, is there anything else you want to add about the Bourne ultimatum? I know we could talk about this movie for hours, but is there anything you want to add about it? Um, not immediately. I would encourage people if they have never seen the Bourne ultimatum, it, it works really best to either watch all three films in the franchise to kind of get yourself into that headspace or at least watch supremacy leading into ultimatum because really those two films together are telling one uh, coherent narrative throughout it because like we said before ultimatum begins the story of ultimatum begins rather somewhere between the very end of supremacy and another scene towards the end of supremacy it's very clever how the writing and the editing kind of overlap those two so i would encourage people to 
at least watch those two. But really, if you haven't seen them, go revisit the, this trilogy. It really holds up by today's standards, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, get some sleep, Pam. You look tired. Um, yeah, so I, I was gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and put words in your mouth because my next question was gonna be, do you give this movie a recommendation? I think it's fair to say we both give it a real strong recommendation. If you haven't seen the Bourne trilogy, uh, you know, if you want to watch Legacy and Jason Bourne, that's up to you. But I think we both give the trilogy a strong recommendation, and we both concur that this is the best of the trilogy. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Um, like, like I said before, the Bourne trilogy is one of those trilogies where each film gets subsequently better than the last. So when you get to Ultimatum, it is, in my opinion, the best of the franchise. And you can watch uh, Bourne Legacy. Uh, it might be worth watching since it takes place during the same time frame, timeline of Born Ultimatum, but it's a separate story concerning Jeremy Renner's character. Um, so if you enjoy the story and you enjoy the world of these characters, that might be worth watching for that purpose alone. But Jason Bourne, I mean, unless you're a completionist type person, you really don't need to watch that fifth film. Yep, I agree. All right. Time to move on to our next movie. Now, I will fully admit, Ryan, this is one that I have kind of been dreading a little bit uh, as I started this podcast, knowing that I was going to have to talk about it, just simply because it's unlike any other movie in Scott's career. It's uh, it's a movie that, you know, and I've had, I had mentioned today on both Twitter and Discord that I was having some trouble approaching this movie. And, and some people who don't live in the U.S. were asking me why. And I was like, well, I mean, it, it's fair to say this movie talks about a, uh, I think what would be fair to say, a difficult time in uh, our nation's history and a time in which people didn't see eye to eye on how things should be handled. And the, and the movie is a movie that is, I think, a difficult movie to approach and and talk about on a level uh dealing with the real world implications of it now as a movie i think we can really dig into it and and stuff like that but i've been kind of struggling a little bit with how i wanted to approach it but first and foremost we're just going to start off with the fact that we are talking about Catherine bigelow's 2012 film zero dark 30 about the hunt for osama bin laden Ryan, when did this movie first pop up on your radar? Uh, I saw this movie. I vividly remember this. I was fresh in Korea towards the end of 2012. And uh, it finally came on base to the movie theater on base uh, shortly after that. I want to say maybe mid-January, something like that. It was still cold. And Korea gets cold. That's how I kind of measure my time at, uh, over there. And uh, the movie theater was packed. I mean, everyone wanted to go see it um, because being in the military and, um, you know, having joined for various reasons, it all tied back to 9-11 and tied back to Osama bin Laden. So to see a film that's portraying how he was found and how um, he was taken out was something that was very appealing to myself and all the other service members I was with. So I, I, I vividly remember seeing this when it opened in the movie theater on base in Seoul, Korea. And 
at the time, um, I was just totally blown away by the presentation of the film, by the story. I thought it was amazingly well acted, which we'll get into um, as we go along. Um, funnily enough, I have not seen the movie since 2013 until I watched it for this show. Um, every time it came up, I would say, oh, yeah, it's a good movie. And then I would remember certain stuff in it and sort of, no, I'm not going to watch that. I need to watch something happy. You know, it, it was just it was just one of those things where I'm glad I watched it. I appreciate the film. There are some really good high points in it. But overall, it's a very, for me personally, it's a very emotional film to, to watch for, for many, many reasons. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. You know, this was on my radar. Uh, so I am an avowed Catherine Bigelow fan. Point Break is is one of my favorite movies. I am one of the people who really, really loves Hurt Locker, even though I understand it's, oh. it, it's completely unrealistic. Um, <laughs> but as a, as a drama, as a character piece, I think it's a terrific movie. Um, and certainly I think the acting is exceptional. Uh, I, I don't, even people that don't like Hurt Locker, right? And I know, in fact, I think one of our very first Twitter interactions was over Hurt Locker. Um, yeah, cause I know Dana's not a fan of it either. And Ashley, mm -hmm. uh, my other co-host from the Dana Buckler show and I are big fans of the movie and you and Dana were like, the fuck is wrong with the two of you? But I think even you would have to admit the acting in that movie is exceptional. I mean, regardless of what you think about the narrative or the script or anything, Mackie and Renner are terrific in that movie. Would you, I mean, you don't have to agree with me on that, but I feel like that's a pretty fair statement. So, yes, the narrative, really good. The acting is absolutely amazing. And um, the realisticness of it is, for that one, is, is really what gets to me because, I know people who do EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, and I know for a fact those motherfuckers, I'm sorry I'm cursing, those dudes do not get in a Humvee and go out to defuse a bomb. It takes those dudes two, three, four, five hours while you're sitting in the damn Afghanistan heat for them to come out to blow up a, a, a freaking IED or check it, and if it's a dud, and then you continue on with their mission. So that particular thing is what drives me freaking insane. Well, However, and they probably don't get into sniper showdowns either. I got to imagine that no. that is probably not something that they do. No, all that to say, Catherine Bigelow, phenomenal director. She knows how to uh, balance action and artistic filmmaking in a very unique way. She draws performances out of her, out of her actors and actresses that is, a, a freaking amazing jeremy renner was oscar nominated for that film you can't deny that the man's talented anthony mackie before that movie i only knew him from eight mile which he was good in that movie but then he comes into hurt locker and it's a totally different actor so it's no surprise that not only can Catherine bigelow construct and present um interesting and artistic big films like this but she's able to pull something out of her actors that is just something next level and we'll talk about the performances in zero dark 30 because in my opinion that's one of the biggest highlights of that film the, the performances absolutely and 
the other thing that I feel like we need to really mention about Zero Dark Thirty is, you know, this popped up on my radar when it was in production. And when it was in production, it was primarily going to focus on something that was that was going to focus on the hunt for Bin Laden and how we hadn't found him. And it was really primarily going to focus on the 2001 Battle of Tora Bora. And then we found Bin Laden. And so Mark Bull, the screenwriter, and Bigelow, basically, literally, as they're going into filming, had to scrap the entire movie uh, and start from scratch. And those who've listened, you know, who've listened to the intro and, and know Scott talked about that, that they didn't have a script. Like, all these people are showing up on set and there's no script because Mark Bull is literally rewriting pages on the day they're being filmed because of... The, and this is always one of the drawbacks with trying to make a movie based on real world events that are still occurring. Uh, the real world decided, oh, hey, fuck your cute little movie. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it a little bit. And, uh, and so, you know, one of the things that most impressed me about this movie is the idea that there's no reason this movie should be anything other than a dumpster fire. And the fact that it's not only not a dumpster fire, but is instead, regardless of my, maybe my personal feelings, which we can kind of talk about a little bit, uh, my personal feelings about the movie, it is a tremendous cinematic accomplishment. And that is unreal to me that they were able to pull off the movie that they were able to pull off given all of those circumstances. And the movie cost $40 million to make. Just sit on that for a bit. Yeah. I mean, folks, if you haven't seen this, I don't know why you're listening to us, but, uh, you know, this is a, a movie that was filmed in several different countries uh, with a, a cast of absolutely killers s- stacked top killers. to bottom. I yeah. mean, any you take any three actors in this movie and they're gonna top line your movie. And, and I mean you got you got people like friggin' John Barrowman, you know, the great uh Captain Jack from mm. Doctor Who showing up for literally one scene. Edgar Ramirez shows yep. up for one scene. James Gandolfini is in two scenes. Like it is mm-hmm. crazy to me the cast in this movie that she was right. able to assemble. Them, Chris Pratt, who is now one of the biggest stars ever in the world. He's in it in a key role as a Navy SEAL towards the end. Jessica Chastain, who is phenomenal freaking actress, is you know is front and center throughout the whole film. And you know, yeah, like you said, all of these actors is just a murderer's row of talent who any one of these people would command a high salary, not to mention be a draw in their own respective movies. But here they all are in this film. Frank fucking Grillo, the almighty Frank Grillo, yes, sir. shows up for one scene as as a member of SEAL Team Six. Like it, it is just crazy to me this this cast. Um, so let's you you mentioned that it's a very you know it's a very powerful, very emotional movie for you, and and like I said, I kind of want to talk a little bit about it as a, as a movie more than getting into, but. What about this movie works? We, we've we obviously talked about the acting, but what else about this movie works so well for you? 
Well, just seeing behind the curtain in a very meaningful way. So a lot of people, when they see certain spy movies, like we were just talking about The Bourne Ultimatum, all the intel is happening super fast, real time. This film showing a real world manhunt for Osama bin Laden portrayed it incredibly accurate where you don't get the intel you need today. You probably won't get it tomorrow or next month or next year but you have to stay after your target consistently and keep digging at it. And you have to approach your targets from multiple avenues. They were going after bin Laden, but you can't go directly after him because he practiced uh, good OPSEC, operational security. He had no cell phone. He dealt directly with couriers. So the analysts in this film are going after him through the other people. They're assembling this massive jigsaw puzzle, just going around the edges and working their way in like you would in, in, in real life. And to see that portrayed on screen, to show the diligence and the hard work that all of these analysts put in for years to try and find that guy is, to me, means a whole lot because I've seen people put in hard work like that on targets and I know exactly how good it feels to finally get to the end of the finish line and see all your hard work paid off. And for a film audience to be invested in this procedural type of film is really goes to, to, uh, to Catherine Bigelow's credit on how she can make these things interesting and continue to push the narrative along. Well, and, and I'm glad you used that term, and I used it too. You know, this really is a procedural. I mean, this isn't necessarily a a traditional narrative in, in any way because there's not – I mean, there is a little bit because we follow Jessica Chastain's fictional character who's a composite of several real-world people. But it's not really a a beginning, middle, and end hero's journey type. What this is, what Bigelow and Bull are really interested in here is the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of how this happened. I mean, to the point that you know Jason Clark, our ostensible second lead in this movie, and Jessica Chastain, our our lead, they're predominantly gone for the whole third act of the movie. Because the whole third act is is when they bring in, you know, we meet all of the SEAL Team 6 guys, Joel Edgerton, Chris Pratt, Mike Colton, Frank Grillo. You know, they bring all of them in, and, and the whole third act is the actual uh, assault on Bin Laden's, the raid, uh, for lack of a better term. And so that's not, that's not something you would do in a traditional script. Right, you wouldn't ever have your two leads disappear for your whole third act. But Bigelow and Bull are so committed to the procedural component of this uh, that they're willing to do that. And I think that's something that's really commendable about this movie is that they they were committed to that procedural aspect. This is, you know, and I'm sure you and I will talk a little bit about realism and and some of the criticisms of the movie as far as realism goes but nonetheless they were committed to that that procedural component of it absolutely in a i don't want to say lesser that's not a good term 
in a different director and writer, they would have had Jessica Chastain um, or um, one of the other main actors on the bird with the seals going into kill Bin Laden. If this were a Jack Ryan type story, Jack Ryan would have been on the bird going in there with the seals, regardless of the fact that that's not his job. But Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bowles commitment to the procedural process, commitment to telling as accurate and as realistic of a story as possible, kept it the way it would be. Jessica Chastain being an analyst, she's not going to go on a raid with the seals. That's not her job. That's not what she's trained for. She's not going to go kicking doors and all that. She's going to be back in on the cop behind the computer monitoring the activity just like everybody else. So the fact that they stuck to that realism and stuck to this is how it happened or this is how we are told in the public, this is how it happened. This is how we're going to show it on the screen is really good and really powerful and it shows their commitment to not sensationalizing the subject matter, uh, especially the subject matter in the beginning half of the film. They're not sensationalizing any bit of it. They're just showing it as it is, and you can draw your own commentary from it. Yeah, I, I like that you brought that up because that's, that's one thing I do kind of want to address with this movie. You know, at the end of the day, it isn't a documentary. Uh, it's not meant to be a documentary. It is a movie. It is a work of historical, I don't want to say historical fiction, but it is not meant to be an, a completely 100% uh, accurate retelling of all of this. Um, and, and no movie ever will be, you know? Um, but I don't think that anybody involved has any interest in I like that you use the word sensationalized. I don't think anybody involved has any interest in sensationalizing this. You know, I know, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this because again, this isn't the type of conversation that people who listen to, you know, Adkins undisputed are, are interested in. But um, I know one of the criticism criticisms of the movie was the, the idea that, you know, it, it sensationalized or glamorized using torture, uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. And. Oh, no, you can call it torture. Yeah, that's absolutely what it is. I'm OK with that. Well, and I, and I, I appreciate that. But I mean, that is what it's, you know, it's called enhanced interrogation techniques. Regardless, it is torture, but that is what it's called. Um, but I'll be honest, I haven't watched this since 2012 until I watched it just today for this podcast and I didn't I didn't feel that I because I felt that the torture scenes in it were I know some people criticize that they didn't put in something you know to show that torture gets bad intel which it does I've known enough FBI you know hostage negotiators and, and people like that given what I do for a living uh, working in law enforcement that you know it gets bad intel, but I still didn't feel like the movie glamorized it. Uh, some people may disagree with me, but I thought the torture scenes were appropriately unsettling and appropriately unnerving. And I never felt like it was. Uh, it, it, it's not Invasion USA, right? Like it's not Chuck Norris, right. you know, it, it, these scenes are in 
appropriately unsettling. At least they were for me. I don't want to speak for everybody else, but they certainly were for me. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, how can I put this? A lot of people um, are of the mindset today that if you show something negative, the entire product is now negative. Um, I don't know if people are too sensitive or if people are knee-jerk reacting to things without context, but for the torture scenes in Zero Dark Thirty, they were shown just as matter of fact, like this is what happened or this is how we believe these things had happened and make your own conclusion from it. Like it's a part of our story. We can't not, not talk about it because it did happen, but we're not going to comment on it. Just here it is. This is what happened and we're going to move along with it. Yeah. I mean, an important thing to remember as movie fans and, and, you know, I know sometimes I fall into this trap too because I'm hippie tree hugging SJW, you know. Um, <laughs> representation does not automatically mean endorsement. And and I'll fully admit, yes. look, man, Zero Dark Thirty challenges that. Like, this is a challenging fucking movie. This is a movie that is going to make you sit up and really think about the things that you're seeing on screen. But I also know Mark Bull's real-world beliefs. I know Catherine Bigelow's real-world beliefs. I, I don't think that this movie was intending to endorse these behaviors. I, I like that you said matter-of-fact. It's not a documentary, but it's also not sensationalized. It is just matter-of-fact. I mean, shit, even the raid at the end is so... The, the part of the movie where you should be like, oh, yeah, let's get him. Let's, you know, kill this fucker is so matter-of-factly shot and so unimpressively shot from an action standpoint. You know, as an action <laughs> fan, it's so unimpressively sure. shot. It's just almost dull. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It goes with the whole matter-of-fact nature of the movie. Bigelow, Bigelow and Bull have no interest in us getting any sense of joy or happiness out of this movie. Right. Like, like because, because there's nothing joyful about any of this. You know, this is a terrorist who committed a horrific act. We spent 10 years tracking him down. We found him. We killed him. Nothing about this is joyous. Nothing about this nope. warrants celebration. And that's what I do really admire about this movie is nothing in this movie is celebratory at fucking all. No, I, yeah, absolutely. And going to the action scene at the end, these guys um, on SEAL Team 6 or the Dev Grooves is how they are commonly referred to. They are one of the two or three top military units in our country and probably in the world them and of course <clears throat> army delta and fbi hrt uh hostage rescue team these are the premier counter-terrorist teams in the world when they go into an objective they have already rehearsed it and walked through it hundreds and hundreds of times so it for them it's it's not a it's not a rush. It's not a exciting thing. It's just, we've done this. This is our mission. We're going to go do it. And that's how Bigelow portrays it in the film that 
when you see them assaulting the compound, they're not running and running and yelling and all the stuff you would see in another action film. They're very quiet. They're very methodical. They're taking their time. They're, they're, they're counting their paces. And it's exactly as a real raid or a real assault would be on this kind of place under these kind of conditions. I mean, like I said before, nothing about this is sensationalized. This is how they do things. And this is just how it is. Yeah, I mean, you compare this to, um, you know, say, well, not even a a uh, straight action movie, but say something like Michael Bay's, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but Michael Bay's Benghazi movie. 13 Hours. 13 Hours, you know, where it's, I actually don't hate that movie, uh, but it's still very Michael Bay. Right, like the way it's sure. shot, it's got all his glowing lighting and all the things that he does versus the very dull color palette and things that, that Bigelow and and her production team and, and Greg Frazier, her, her cinematographer, the way they shoot this movie. Like, they literally don't want you to enjoy a single second of this movie. And I don't mean that as a criticism. Because this isn't a movie that we should be uh, enjoying. I, I don't want to say enjoy. As a movie fan, I enjoy it. Because it's a good fucking movie. But I'm not interested in hoorah. You know, it's even, I think of, right. uh, I think of one of the other movies that I think is somewhat similar to this, which is uh, Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down. But yes. even even that movie, Scott couldn't resist the shot of Eric Bana on the back of the truck with the big, uh, I can't remember if it was, because it's been a while since I've seen the movie, rocket launcher or machine gun rescuing everybody at the end, and he gets a big hero shot. And, and it's something that always stuck out to me because it feels so counter to so much of what's going on in the rest of that movie. And kudos to Bigelow, because she resists any of that. There is not a single shot in this movie that I would consider like a hero shot, as you would expect to see in an action movie. Uh, just, just not even one. They, you know, uh, like you mentioned, another filmmaker, we would get the right stuff scene of Devgru walking towards the helicopters with some mm -hmm. big, you know, swarming Hans Zimmer scores. They're about to load up on the helicopter. And nope, none of that. Nothing in this. Nope. The closest you get to that is when they are in their cop right before they load up and they're just sitting around the fire, BSing, loading their magazines and throwing shoe horses and all that sort of, all that stuff. Because that's what you do before you go out on a raid. You chill out. I mean, you're not gearing up. You're not blasting like hard rock music and getting yourself amped up. I mean, you're just, you know. You're just chilling with the homies. So that's the closest you get to that. And that's realistic to those people in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's the thing with this movie is it, it's just a tremendous piece of filmmaking. I it really, it, it really is. Um, so Ryan, as a, as, as an intelligence guy, you know, you said that there were things in born that really bothered you. Uh, so break down this movie for me. How does this movie do as far as that kind of stuff goes? 
So as far as intelligence gathering goes, this film is more in line with how things operate in the real world. Um, there's going to be a team of people. They are going to be working together. Jessica Chastain's character is front and center um, because, of course, you need a, a main character and you need a, a hero or heroine in her case to follow along. But there is a, a team of people all contributing to this problem set. And in the case of bin Laden, there were thousands of people from all across the intelligence community and the Department of Justice and our international partners all working together to find this guy. So showing how her as an analyst is doing the nitty gritty stuff, putting things together, figuring out, you know, this person was actually the brother of this person and this guy is still alive and how can we get to him and find out what's going on. All of that stuff um, is tremendously accurate to how things would operate in the real world. So contrasting to Bourne, where the intelligence gathering and the analysis and the decision-making is lightning, lightning quick, in this movie, it's broken out into almost real time. There's a scene towards the end when they're, uh, well, I shouldn't say a scene. There's a couple of minutes uh, leading up to the uh, raid in Pakistan where Jessica Chastain keeps going to the uh, uh, window outside of Mark Strong's office and writing how many days it's been since they discovered this compound. And you show her continued diligent work on gathering information on who's inside this compound. You show Mark Strong talking to the uh, advisors to uh, then President Obama on what we need to do and delivering that information and how long it actually takes from recognition of a potential target to execution of the target is extremely accurate because I have seen people continue working on problem sets that get solved either super fast or they get drug out because there's not enough information. So in contrast to Bourne and in contrast to other spy movies, this one shows a fairly accurate portrayal of how things get done. And that's, you know, it's always so interesting watching a movie like this because I do understand, you know, as frustrated as I get sometimes when people ask me about legal movies, and I'll admit, I'm not a perfect human being. I do get frustrated. Uh, I always have to remind myself, most people don't live in the world that I live in. You know, things that are so basic to me. You know, when I see people throw words like hearsay around or the Fourth Amendment around, and it's like they're so obviously wrong I get upset, but then I have to remind myself, well, but they probably got that from fucking law and order. You know, they, they don't know. They didn't spend years of their life in this world like I have. I mean, I've been a lawyer now for almost 20 years. And I was thinking of that as I was watching this movie because as I was watching it, I was like, well, you know, this seems pretty accurate and pretty on point. And then I actually stopped myself. It was like, I don't fucking know. Like, I have no fucking clue whether this movie's accurate. This movie could be 100% bullshit. I don't, I've never been in the military. I have no fucking idea. And so I, that's one of the reasons I wanted you on this is because I did want somebody who could tell me that because yeah, to me, 
I understand there's a lot of things that were made for the purposes of narrative. But I remember the first time somebody challenged me on Hurt Locker because it was when I was I was teaching. Uh, for those who don't know, I also used to be a college professor. And I had a student who was an ex-Marine sniper, and he hated Hurt Locker. And I brought it up in class one day, mm. and, and he was like, he just like literally like scoffed in open class. And so I asked him, I said, stick around after you're, you know, I made sure you're not in trouble or anything like that. I just, I want to talk to you. And he kind of outlined for me all the things. And he, he much like you, he's like, look, the acting's great. He's like, I actually think it's a good movie. He's like, but I lived in that world. So I can't like the movie because I, I, all I can see are the things that are wrong. Um, And I was like, and it was one of those things where I was like, as somebody who's never been in the military, I was like, I watched the Hurt Locker and I was like, well, shit, this seems like one of the most accurate military movies I've ever seen in my life. Like this really (laughs) feels like what it's like, you know? And it was really eye opening to me that somebody, but then I also have to remind myself that it's like, yeah, every time somebody watches a cop movie or a lawyer movie, I'm like, no, like, Give me, give me bad boys. Give me something that is like so completely ridiculous that I don't have to worry about it. Because if you're like Law and Order and you try and pretend like you exist in the real world, it just drives me fucking nuts. Um, and so I didn't know on this one. That's why I wanted you on it because I was like, I really have no frame of reference for whether this movie is good, bad, accurate. You know, as far as that stuff. I had a hunch Bourne wasn't very accurate, but I didn't know about this one. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, as far as inaccuracies go, and it's not so much inaccuracies, it's just, I mean, the manhunt for Osama bin Laden took a number of years, and like I said, involved thousands of people. You can't obviously show all that stuff. So while the film focuses on Jessica Chastain and her own you know, dogged pursuit of him, you know, you have to bear in mind that it's not just her, a CIA analyst going after him. There are people all over the American intelligence community working the same thing, working different leads and working different issues. Um, And while some of those leads and issues were not leading towards Osama bin Laden, they were leading to other Al-Qaeda or Taliban people and things were getting done. I mean, it was a war on terror and they were producing results against these very very bad people so things were getting done but the real sticking point i shouldn't even say sticking point just the one minor minor criticism of the realism is it doesn't show the totality of the effort that went into finding osama bin laden but like i said you can't possibly encompass all of that into this two and a half hour film you have to stick with your main character and drive on with her and it's a good thing they did because jessica chastain is freaking phenomenal um in in her performance in this movie she is yeah people will know that i uh who have listened will know that uh miss chastain unfortunately was the star of my pick for worst movie of the year in 2020 uh, which was Ava, uh, but that is in no way, shape, or form a criticism of her. I think she is a stunningly uh, terrific actress, uh, and she certainly is. 
I mean, there's there's not from a cast standpoint, there's not a weak link in this movie. I mean, there is not a single person in this movie that isn't turning in some of the best work of their career. And I will actually go as far as to say that actually applies to even Scott. Uh, you know, for the few minutes he's in this movie, I think he's absolutely terrific in it. Absolutely. I mean, he's playing a CIA uh, SOG operative, uh, special operations group operative for CIA. They're the sort of paramilitary uh, arm of the CIA. And while he doesn't have a lot to do or a lot to say, just his presence, his mannerisms, his attention to his fellow actors in the scenes he's in. I mean, he feels like he's a part of this world. He feels like he actually is uh, an SOG guy out there doing his business. It's extremely immersive. The, the small amount of screen time he has really pulls you into what's going on. Well, and he and Jennifer Eel get to be part of what I think is probably the most actually upsetting part of the movie is, you know, mm. we realize that they are victims of the Camp Chapman attack uh, and and that scene and the way that scene plays out. You know, you talked about how Paul Greengrass is a master of, of building tension uh, and how sometimes he builds it up and then other times it's calm and calm and then it explodes. You know, Catherine Bigelow ain't no shout, ain't no slouch at that either. And here we get a scene that is just it's tense but it's like tense 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 oh fuck and then you're just left devastated um when that scene's over absolutely like you're just absolutely destroyed um you know and of course i'm super destroyed because they killed scott atkins uh but uh (laughs) It's, 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 I think for me, I think the most upsetting scene in the entire movie, intentionally. So I, I I mean, it, it, it's a very effective scene. I agree. That scene really hit home with me the closest. Um, I have not, uh, experienced, uh, uh, being blown up by any means. A lot of my friends have, and they've all been fine and survived, but I've seen in person, what happens when a VBID, uh, a vehicle-borne IED, um, a VBID goes off and it is horrific. And in the military, especially in the Army, in the Marine Corps, uh, because we're the most ground-oriented combat people, we are trained over and over on how to maintain security, how to check vehicles and personnel for these types of things. You train on it in basic training for crying out loud. You train on it before you deploy. You run drills on it when you are deployed on how to do these things. And all of these procedures are done so it becomes second nature so you can keep people alive. You can keep yourself alive, keep your battle buddies alive, uh, even the freaking Afghan workers that are on the compound, you know, just earning a living, keep them alive too. And the fact that they disregarded all of these safety protocols because of a lead really irritates me. Um, and it really, really hits close to home. Once again, while I've never experienced uh, intelligence people overriding base security, I uh, would imagine that it has happened. It clearly did happen at Camp Chapman. And the fact that it was allowed to happen um, 
it, it's both sad in the context of the film, but also on a personal level, it really pisses me off because a lot of Americans and a lot of you know, innocent, hardworking Afghans were killed just because the CIA person needed a lead. Well, and I did, you know, when I after I got done watching the movie today, I started doing a little research because I'm like, well, I don't want to be completely ignorant on this. Um, but boy, howdy, there's a rabbit hole and a half you can go down researching this movie. But I did do a little bit on the Camp Chapman attack. And yeah, I mean, that does appear to be, again, I'm not very familiar with it, but that does appear to be kind of what actually happened like there was in real this wasn't necessarily dramatized for the movie there was security breakdowns that arguably never should have happened here would that be would that be fair to say ryan absolutely i mean any base commander worth their salt would have overridden that cia person's order quote air quotes in a in a freaking heartbeat i mean Maintaining security on any installation where there's American lives and innocent people's lives, period, is paramount when you're downrange. And uh, yeah, it just makes my blood boil. So again, kudos to Bigelow and Bull for, uh, you know, not, not again, shying away from that and making sure that there's nothing this is just this is a movie that I feel like is calculated to make everybody uncomfortable watching it. And and again, that's not a criticism of the movie. That's a, a compliment to the movie. Because there's certainly plenty of movies that are designed to make people uncomfortable. But um Yeah, this is this is one that I just feel like well, I mean, it caused quite a quite a fracas when it came out. I'm sure that a lot of people listening are going to have some very strong opinions on it. I I've already had a couple of people who've said that they're not sure that they might they might not listen to this episode. Um, I don't blame them for that because again, these are this is a pointed movie, but I do think that it's worth talking about. Um, I am glad that. Uh, well, I would tell people. I would tell people, regardless of your personal feelings on the subject matter, <clears throat> Catherine Bigelow is, uh, this word gets thrown around and I hate it, but it really describes her. She is an auteur, an auteur. She knows how to present things on screen in a compelling and interesting way. So if for nothing else, just seeing how she constructed the film and how she presented the film is worth the price of admission. And if you were able to view the film as we've been talking in a matter of fact way, instead of in a glorification way, uh, just try and quiet or eliminate your bias one way or the other and just take the film as it is. I think you will appreciate it. You probably won't enjoy it, but you will appreciate it and you'll come away from watching the film thinking, okay, that was a good movie. And now I'm never going to watch it again unless I have to do a podcast. Yeah, that's exactly. I hadn't watched this movie in nine years. It will probably easily be nine Same. years before I watch it again. Um, I rated it today on Letterboxd after I watched it. I rated it three and a half stars. I think it's a better movie than that. I think it's probably a four. Letterboxd is on a five-star scale for those who don't know. 
I think it's probably a four and a half to five star movie, but I couldn't rate it that because it was so, it was such an unpleasant watch that I felt like I had to rate it three and a half to sort of articulate that it's, it's a brilliant movie that I really could probably go without ever watching again, or at least without watching again for 10 years. Um, But I do think it is a, a tremendous cinematic accomplishment. Um, Like most of Bigelow's stuff, you know, I mean, I'm with everything you said about her, Ryan. She's a true auteur. She is so confident as a director in terms of, you know, you think you go back to near dark and then point break and then strange days and, you know, all the way to Hurt Locker in this, uh, I thought Detroit, unfortunately, was a bit of a misfire. Um, but she's so confident as a director and so assured of the story that she wants to tell and the way she wants to tell it that I think she's really special and she doesn't make that many movies. So we sort of owe it to her to watch her movies when they come out because she is a voice that I think we need to have and we need to make sure that she's still making movies by being successful. Absolutely. And even, like I said, if you don't agree with whatever subject matter she is telling, you can go into her movie and expect to just be wowed from the visuals that she puts on screen, from uh, how she uh, uh, draws the, these incredible performances out of her actors and actresses. I mean, it's it's absolutely stellar what she's able to put on the screen. Well, and especially because she's never locked into one, you know, she's very much in this regard, I think of her and Tony Scott kind of the same way in that they're never locked into any one filmmaking style. You look at Near Dark, Correct. which is one of the most stylistic MTV, like I love Near Dark, but it is one of the most stylistic MTV ass looking movies that you will ever see. And you compare that to the absolute dull, uh, realistic, gritty way that Zero Dark Thirty is shot. You, if you didn't know better, you there's no way you would have expected those were from the same director. Like, there is no chance that you would have thought those were from the same director. And and so that is the thing that I think makes her truly a special filmmaker um, and and one that I think really needs to be uh, celebrated. And and this is arguably, it's not my favorite movie of hers, but I think it might be her biggest accomplishment in her entire well, it's not my favorite of hers either. My favorite of hers is going to be Point Break because it's freaking amazing. But you can see her growth as an artist. A lot of directors, um, I'll just use Michael Bay as an example. They sort of stick to the formula that people are familiar with them. And that's how their films are shown. Bigelow's growth as as a director is phenomenal. Going from a film like like you said, New Dark to Point Break and then X amount of years later to freaking Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. I mean, the I don't want to say the jump, but the progression in her skill set 
is astronomical and shows a real maturity and a real eye for what matters most on the screen. And she shows that expertly. Agreed. I think that's that's probably. Is there anything else you want to add about Zero Dark Thirty? Anything else? That, you know, I know you've been you were super excited to talk about this, so I don't want you to feel like um, I I don't want to cut you off or, or leave you not saying anything that you want to say. Is there anything else you want to add about the movie? Um, just the cast once again is phenomenal, and the fact that they had all of these actors. They had all of these international sets and all of these big set pieces and the film cost $40 million is mind boggling to me when you compare this to the budget of any other big film. Um, So, I mean, just once again, more praise to heap on Catherine Bigelow and her team for how they were able to pull it off and just show it the way they did and just make a very incredible looking film. Yeah, I'm going to agree with all of that. So um, as as I did with Born, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think it's fair to say that you, if somebody hasn't seen this one, with the caveats that we've talked about, this would be a strong recommendation for them. Absolutely. I would tell anybody, if you have never seen it, just do yourself a favor, block out two and a half hours out of your day, just sit down, Don't look at your phone and just pay attention to what's being presented to you. Then after that, if you don't want to see it again for another nine years or 10 years, I totally understand it. Don't watch it again. But I think, I think people should experience this movie at least once, if nothing else, just to see the performances and to see what is on the screen. And I'm, I'm going to completely agree with that. This one's going to get a strong recommendation from me if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it and you're listening to us recommend this and you're like, fuck you guys, I never want to see that movie again, we totally get that as well. Um, that, that's that's fine with me. You know, I always tell the story of one of my favorite movies of all time is Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, a movie that I have seen exactly once. I have never yep. seen again, and I never nope. need to because that fucking thing is burned in my memory. And will probably be until the day I die. Uh, this is in that same category. Yeah. Uh, it's a tremendous cinematic accomplishment. I get if nobody ever wants to watch it more than once. Yeah, I uh, I'm of the belief with uh, that movie. If you want kids to stop doing drugs, you should show them that movie, and they'll never want to do drugs ever in their entire life. Fucking Leto shooting up in that gangrene infested hole, man. I I will never forget oh. watching that movie. I jumped out of my seat in the movie theater when he did that. And I still remember that scene. I haven't seen that movie in 21 years. And I crystal clearly can still picture that scene in my head. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Brilliant film. Beautiful film. Never going to see it again. Totally get it. Yep. Absolutely. So... All right. Well, Ryan, uh, what I always like to do when we get to the end of this, you know, we didn't get to talk about Adkins a bunch because as we, as I mentioned, and we talked about, he's not in either of these movies for very long. So go ahead and, uh, throw out, uh, just a couple of your favorite Scott Adkins movies. Well, as I said, at the top of the film, or sorry, at the top of the podcast, um, I mean, undisputed too for me was the jumping off point 
So I would encourage anybody to jump onto that movie because it's freaking phenomenal. And then of course, to see all of the Undisputed movies because you can't go wrong with him and you can't go wrong with Michael Jai White for that matter. Uh, after that, um, Ninja really stands out to me. You know my love for Ninja movies and that movie is Ninja with Scott Atkins. So, I mean, you can't go wrong with that either. And then of course the sequel of that, Shadow of a Tear? Tear, like Shadow of a Tear, yep. Yep, yep, that also amazing film. Uh, so those to me are the the most standout and then of course he's in some more mainstream films but i don't think he has had his big big mainstream film break which is fine i'm totally okay with that because he can remain our hidden gem in the action world yeah certainly the closest is arguably dr strange um he you mm-hmm. know um which that will be coming down the pipeline uh in another uh double episode ladies and gentlemen uh Coming up, we'll be talking about Wolverine and Doctor Strange back-to-back because I thought those would go well together as well. Um, All right, Ryan, this was exactly as uh, interesting and fun of a conversation as I hoped it would be. Uh, Likewise. So I thank you so much for coming on. Um, As I mentioned before, plug some shit. Where can people find you? So I am on Twitter at GRCopal. If you follow... Mike on Twitter, you will see me on there as well because we go back and forth quite a bit. I am on Instagram at Ryan Copeland Author. That is where you can see all the updates on the book as it's coming out. You can read some sample chapters. You can view the artwork. There is a link in there as well uh, to pre-order or purchase the book at your leisure. Those are the best places to find me. And uh, book March 1st, 2021 on Amazon. I will make sure to have a link in the show notes. Uh, so everybody that listens, please, please, please support Ryan's book. Uh, I know I am going to, and I can't wait to actually dig into it. Um, so uh, because you are one of my few friends, I know that's actually written a book. I don't have a ton of friends who've actually sat down and written a book. So I uh, I will be picking your brain on that as we get down the road, because uh, some people know I have I no promises uh, but I do have aspirations of trying to maybe turn this podcast into a book at some point. So I will certainly be picking your brain down the road when we get to that point. It would be my pleasure to help you in any way that I possibly can, my friend. All right, Ryan. Uh, awesome. As always, uh, we will certainly talk soon. Have a good night, my friend. You too. Thanks. And that will do it for this week's episode. Thanks to Ryan for joining me. Please support him by checking out his new book. I'll have a link in the show notes. And thank you as always to Scott Adkins for joining me to talk about his experiences making these movies. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Hibachi Justice. You can find the show on Twitter at Adkins Podcast and Instagram at Adkins Undisputed. You can email me at AdkinsUndisputedPod at gmail.com. You can find my work with The Dana Buckler Show at Linktree slash Dana Buckler Show, where we talk about all sorts of movies and almost none of them Scott Adkins related. Next week, we go back to a full-on leading role with Scott as he teams up with Dolph Lundgren to take on a dragon in Legendary. And I'll be joined by my good friend Wendy Freeman to discuss the film as well as the influence Scott has had on her own life. So next time, make sure to bring your ears, your podcast app of choice, and your fucking champion to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world.